No, no, Gavin, you're, you're right. Johnny Cochran in a white barrister wig really would be uh, something to see. Yikes. The following podcast contains... Like F.U. and 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 S and stuff like that, and then M.F. and stuff like that. Those are not. Those are. Those those are. Um, they're not. They're not words. Those are names of spirits. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question: When you uh, when you put a guy on the stand who had to. Drop off his clan robes on the way to the courtroom? What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 411, Dennis Fung Blues. It's part three and the conclusion to our summer series, Wheezing the Juice, where we talk about how bad of a shit show OJ's trial really was. Stay tuned. E- what the hell were you thinking podcast is brought to you by, hey, Fast Eddie's Jury Consultants. We find them, and we fix them. Everybody knows the criminal justice system is flawed. That's why Fast Eddie's Jurist Consultant is here to help you fix your jury problem. Our experts have many years inside the criminal justice system and have been intimately involved in many serious criminal trials, so we know juries. We can help your case by discovering uh, the weak spots in any jury, uh, be they associations unknown to the prosecutions or uh, maybe financial situations making a juror amenable to the f- defensive arguments. All these things that clever thinking defense counsel could probably exploit to reach a satisfactory outcome. So don't leave your jury trial up to chance. Reach out to Fast Eddie's jury consultants and put the fix on your legal problems. Double murder trial of O.J. Simpson. There was more than enough proof today how highly charged the case is, just as the prosecution and the defense were set to begin opening statements, which would mark the first time the jury hears the approach which the two sides will take. The defense raised several new issues which had the prosecution crying foul. First, here is a summary of the day from ABC's Bill Redeker. O.J. Simpson's mother Eunice and his sisters Shirley and Carmelita fought the crowds to get into the courthouse. His two older children were seated directly behind the defense table. Behind them, Judge Ito's parents. On the other side of the courtroom, the families of victims Ronald Goldman and Nicole Simpson. Two members of the public won their courtroom seats in a lottery. Oh, God, I remember the the beginning of the trial of the century. I mean, not so much for the trial itself, but from where I was when it started. A drunk tank. I'm not saying I was sober, but I wasn't personally incarcerated. I might as well have been since I was in the Republic of Panama since just before Christmas of the previous year. Are you running from the law again? Again, no. I was down there because Bill Clinton was a big fat fucking liar. He stole your girlfriend? Not directly, no, but I did lose a girlfriend because of the situation. No, I was in Panama because there had been a Cuban boat lift, and instead of honoring the promises to allow the refugees into the country, Clinton sent them to Panama and put them in camps out in the jungle. Is that even legal? But you know what? Neither was sent in the Gitmo, but he did that too. The whole story is laid out in in episode 186, Operation Circle Jerk. Now then, just doing a quick promo. The details aren't really important, suffice to say, after weeks of sleeping in a fucking tent in the snake-infested jungles of Panama, we finally started to get a respite from roughing it. We took turns going to Howard Air Force Base, where we would spend a couple of days under dilapidated barracks dating from around the time that they dug the Panama Canal. Luxury accommodations. Maybe by Army standards, but we Air Force types were used to somewhat better. 
But they had air conditioning, showers, real beds, and cable television. The problem was, there was nothing fucking on those televisions except O.J. Simpson trial coverage. Armed Forces Television Panama apparently just switched to the court TV feed and left it on there full time for the general for the duration of the trial. Good is what the people want. So every time we came off the range and into the barracks, we would sit, eat shitty Domino's pizza, drink warm beer, and watch the OJ show for hours at a time. Then we would rotate back out to the camps and tell the people still in the camps what happened on the OJ show. Robert Shapiro's focused on his number one priority. Which was, of course, getting Robert Shapiro on television as much as humanly possible. You know, to this day, whenever I think of the three months I spent in Panama, I don't think about the history or the culture or the rugged beauty of the jungles or the technological achievement of the canal because it was just a ditch and the jungles were fucking disgusting. I think about sitting in a shitty barracks in a day room, eating bad pizza, drinking warm beer, and watching the O.J. Simpson trial on television. We all knew the risk when we joined the service. Which is where we are in part three of the summer series, Wheezing the Juice, the actual trial of Orenthal James Simpson. Yeah, I heard about that thing on the AM radio. Oh, Despite the recent advances in direct-to-cable criminal justice, the vast majority of people in these here United States only experienced what the criminal justice system was through crime drama television. And that, at the time, was, of course, none other than... In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. So the average American was not prepared to experience the reality of a criminal trial proceeding, meaning they were not prepared for the uh, mind-numbing monotony of an actual trial. And as I've said many times, I am not a lawyer. Oh, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. And have been, but I have been at more than a few trials over my years, either as a cop or a loss prevention detective or even my time as a drunk in public. Resisting arrest of being a victim, a victim of a crime. I've never been charged with anything. Felony, anyway. So, I'm something of a knowledgeable layman in this area. Now he's just making up yeah. shit. <laughs> hey, you want hard research, listen to Serial, okay? You're listening to this show. The official trial of O.J. Simpson began in November 1994 with the preliminary motions, which are kind of like judicial foreplay. You know, both sides getting together, they size each other up find out what they're into, make a little dirty talk, and just, uh... Sing you shake what you've got. But you do it in front of a trial judge instead of in the bedroom. And in this case, that trial judge was one Lance Allen Ito. Now, Ito was the son of Japanese-Americans who were interned during World War II and went on to be an undergrad at UC Berkeley and then graduated from Berkeley's Bowalt School of Law and then served in the L.A. County DA's office. He was appointed to the bench in 1987 and was tangentially involved in the Latasha Harlins case, which was a prelude to the Rodney King riot. He was also tangentially involved in the Menendez brother trial and was the trial judge in the Charles Keating bribery case, where Keating bribed U.S. congressional representatives as it was convicted, but it was overturned on appeal due to technical reasons around Judge Ito's jury instructions. Uh, not so great. This wasn't that Ito was a bad judge, he was a perfectly average judge, and his assignment to the OJ trial was a matter of chance and, frankly, bad luck on his part, because he was about to be the chief turd in the shitstorm of biblical proportions that was the OJ trial. And there are those who said that, you know... Please, you love the attention. ...about Lance Ito, and that was probably true, but he was hardly alone in that. 
There would be one other issue, however, that would emerge. Eno's wife, Margaret York, was a high-ranking member of the LAPD, and some, and that uh, she had some, uh, uh, let's put it, let's say history with some of the more controversial figures on the witness stand. But you know what? We'll get to that soon enough. Now, like at a sport ball game, you've got opposing sides. And all the offense was the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office and their quarterback... It's a metaphor. ...was Marsha Clark. Marsha Clark was a veteran starter out of UCLA and Southwestern Law with 20 murder convictions under her belt. She was a star prosecutor and specialized in cases with intense public interest, including the trial of a murdered actress Rebecca Schaefer. Not Rebecca Schaefer's Charles, she was the one that was murdered, but the guy who murdered her. Clark was the first and only pick for Los Angeles District Attorney Gil Garcetti. Backing up, backing her up was one William Hodgman, a longtime veteran of the DA's office with a heavy background in winning murder trials. I don't remember him. He was the old white dude that near, damn near had a, had a heart attack from all the stress in the case, so he really didn't show up at the main show very often. And finally, there was Christopher Darden, who was originally su- assigned to prosecute A.C. Collins for conspiracy and aiding and abetting. He was brought on to assist in the O.J. trial, and when Hodgman dropped out, Darden became the co-counsel on the case. Both Clark and Darden were veteran lawyers with many convictions under their belts, and their choice for Simpson trial was widely hailed by legal pundits and was strongly supported by the district attorney's office. And also, let's face it, Clark and Darden, great TV chemistry. I mean, it was so good that there was one burning question that was on many people's lips. Are they fucking? Which they insist they were not. And all in all, the case was considered to be pretty much a slam dunk. No one in the DA's office saw what was coming. Before we get to the defense team, we should talk about the evidence cops had against OJ. Which was a lot. Yeah, first of all, we have the domestic violence, even if OJ had gotten away with it at the time. It was documented fairly well that OJ beat the shit out of Nicole on the reg, and it was openly known that he was intensely jealous and had a hair trigger. But the prosecution didn't really press all that hard with this, and the defense got a lot of it excluded because I guess there's some sort of legal precedent that you can't be, uh... Why are you bringing up old shit? But then there was OJ's alibi. Or rather, the absence of OJ's alibi. Now, Nicole was killed between 10 and 10.30 p.m., and Cato had lost OJ at 9.30 p.m., and no one knew where he was between that time and just before 11 p.m. when his limo driver arrived to pick him up to go to the airport. Another witness testified that he had gone to OJ's house around 10.30 p.m., and neither OJ nor his white Bronco were home. And then there was the DNA, and there was a lot of DNA. OJ's blood was at the crime scene. Nicole and Ron's blood was in OJ's Bronco and on a bloody glove and a pair of bloody socks in OJ's house. The cops matched hair and fiber that put OJ at the murder scene. And finally, there were those shoes. You know, the shoes. Everybody talked about those goddamn shoes. Bruno Mogli, size 12. Left bloody shoe prints all over that fucking crime scene. Shoes, which OJ owned and OJ wore, but were never found in any search. All in all, the physical evidence against OJ was indisputable, to which the defense team replied, well... Well, if it isn't. Which brings us to the dream team. I diddly ho, dream team. OJ had made a lot of money over the years. We learned in part one how OJ had marketed himself to advertisers who paid him very well. And while his Hollywood career was not distinguished, it was well compensated. 
So he was worth around $11 million in 1994, which would be about $22.5 million in today's money. And that kind of scratch will buy you a lot of lawyers. But the lawyers all started with Bob. Robert, Robert Kardashian. Bob was only technically a lawyer, which is not the best kind of lawyer. He had a law license. He was on the bar and had passed the bar and had practiced law in the past. But Bob's real position was being OJ's buddy. The two had known each other for decades. Their families were close. And Bob was not deeply versed in criminal law. You know what Bob was deeply versed in? He created a magazine called Radio and Records, which he sold for a tidy profit, and then started a company called Movie Tunes, which licensed music to movie theaters to play before movies. And then he had a music video production company, and finally, a frozen yogurt company. Quite the legal mind. Let's be clear, Bob Kardashian was not on the dream team because he was a good lawyer. He was on the dream team, so he could not be compelled to testify against OJ and about how he had almost certainly disposed of evidence for O.J., very likely the aforementioned Bruno Mogli shoes. Allegedly. Once it became clear that o to O.J. he was under suspicion for the murders for the, that he had definitely committed, he did turn to the man so many rich Los Angelinos turned to when they committed a crime. Robert Shapiro. People like Daryl Strawberry, Jose Consenco, Vince Coleman, Johnny Carson, Christian Brando, and Linda Lovelace. Now... I don't want you to think that all those people that I just mentioned did crimes like O.J. did. No, Shapiro did all sorts of court cases. But it was pretty well known that if you were rich and uh, you clipped somebody, lived in Los Angeles, you wanted Robert Shapiro. Not because he was a brilliant legal mind, because his specialty was... Uh, his bloviating and speeches. Shapiro was a master manipulator of the media and public opinion. And O.J. had hired him before he was even arrested, and Shapiro was the lead counsel for the defense in the early days of the case. And it was also Shapiro that put together the rest of the dream team, picking and choosing each member for their abilities and, and trial histories. Shapiro was definitely an egotistical blowhard, and the most dangerous place in all of Los Angeles was between Robert Shapiro and a, and a TV camera, but he knew how to win cases by blasting bullshit into the public zeitgeist and how to find other lawyers to do, like, the law stuff. So, let's meet the Dream Team. <laughs> F. Lee Bailey, another celebrity attorney, had represented Sam Shepard, the fugitive inspiration, and he'd won. Then he represented Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, and he won. Because Albert DeSalvo, who probably was one of the Boston Stranglers, was never tried for any of the murders that he did. Then he got Captain Ernest Medina off for his participation in the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam. He represented Patty Hearst. But yeah, he fumbled that when Patty was convicted. And after that, Bailey kind of fell from graves until Shapiro tapped him for the Simpson defense. Next was Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz who managed the appeals side of the case, which wound up not actually being necessary. Post-OJ, Dersh has represented such luminaries as Julian Assange, Jeffrey Epstein, and uh, Harvey Weinstein. There's someone, uh, there's someone that I forgot. Oh, oh, yep, yep, I forgot who I was forgetting. Yeah, I got it now. Donald J. Trump in his first impeachment trial. Then there was Barry Sheck, who had a reputation for shredding forensic evidence like he was Fawn Hall in Oliver North's basement. Who is that? Should we know who that is? I'll do a show about it someday. Then there were Sean Hawley, Carly Douglas, Gary Ullman, and Peter Neufeld, all of whom were lawyers working for the bigger guns in the case in various specialties. 
And finally, Shapiro knew that the team had a lot going for it, but it, it just needed something. A little zhuzh to make it complete. And thus, we come to the final and most important member of the Dream Team. Johnny Cochran. Johnny Cochran was a phenomenal fucking lawyer. He was very much in the celebrity lawyer category. But as Johnny was fond of saying in his very imitable style, I'm not here for the OJs, I'm here for the no-jays. Said I wasn't going to do Johnny Cochran impressions. But it was the high-profile cases that Johnny took on that made him the guy for the OJ case. From uh, Cochran's New York Times obituary in 2005, quote, Over the years, Cochran represented football great Jim Brown on, on rape and assault charges, actor Todd Bridges on attempted murder charges, rapper Tupac Shakur on a weapons charge, and rapper Snoop Dogg on a murder charge. He also represented former Black Panther Elmer Gerardo Pratt, who spent 27 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. When Cochran helped Pratt win his freedom in 1997, he called the moment the happiest day of my life practicing law, unquote. Johnny was a proven lawyer with gigantic fucking wins and a sterling reputation. And as far as Shapiro went, well, you know, he was also... That's right. He's a black guy, isn't he? Though <laughs> this, uh, this would later prove a problem for old Bob Shapiro because in Shapiro's opinion, Johnny would prove to be just a little, you know... Almost too black. The trial opened in January of 1995. The two sides laid out their cases in the opening statements. Streamit.com provides this summary. Whatever. I don't know what it's about. All I know is it just summarized everything and made it so I didn't have to fucking type it. Quote, Christopher Darden led off the prosecution's opening statement by portraying Simpson as an abusive husband and a jealous lover of Nicole Brown Simpson. Darden told jurors if he, if he couldn't have her, he didn't want anybody else to have her. Marsha Clark followed with a statement laying out the facts proving Simpson's guilt that the prosecution would establish during the trial. And then the next day, Johnny Cochran gave an opening statement for the defense in which he presented a confused timeline of events and suggested that Simpson was so crippled by arthritis that he couldn't possibly have pulled off the double murder. Cochran told the jury that the defense would prove that the evidence against Simpson was contaminated, compromised, and ultimately corrupted. Unquote. Sorry, I did it. I wasn't going to do a Johnny impersonation, but sometimes... You just can't stop yourself. And what followed over the next 99 days was a textbook case on how a defense team can take insurmountable evidence. Cochran would eventually take over the lead of the defense team from Shapiro and make the case about two things. Police incompetence and police racism. And pod friends, it was something to behold. Let's begin with DNA. Look, it's 2023. We are so used to DNA evidence that it's widely considered to be indestructible, indisputable, and irrefutable. See, I didn't do a Johnny Cochran impression that time. I wanted to, but I didn't. But in 1995, the only thing the average juror knew about DNA was that you could use it to make dinosaurs. Oh, Mr. DNA, where did you come from? From your blood. Just one drop of your blood contains billions of strands of DNA, the building blocks of life. A DNA strand like me is a blueprint for building a living thing. It had only been introduced as evidence in a court case in 1986, where it was used to acquit a defendant in a case in England. In 1987, the first conviction in the U.S. was obtained through DNA matching, and for most people, DNA was still new, scary, and not at all understood. So what the prosecution had to do in the OJ trial was make DNA understandable to the jury which they completely failed to do. Their experts bored the shit out of the jury. 
causing many of them to tune out at best or question the validity of the science at worst. Frankly, that stain is a little bit different than the others as well because while consistent with Mr. Simpson, there's obviously another contributor that is not directly related or may not be directly related to this case on the steering wheel. So that one is slightly different from the other mixtures as well in this case. God, uh, if there stop is sufficient it. data, you're stop saying it. how often you might see this particular demonstrate and I'll be glad to, to provide copies stop of those articles. It. That there is a scientific basis I'm so for bored us to and that's just 30 what seconds of it. Stop. Oh. God damn. I had to pull a lot of audio tape to find anything that I didn't think you would put you all to sleep in like the 30 seconds that I played of it. And I'm pretty sure I lost at least three of you. But you know what? Even if the jury bought the science, the defense, they destroyed the foundation of his collection. Namely, by criticizing the work of one poor bastard named Dennis Fung. And I pulled some audio of Dennis Fung's testimony but I did fall asleep while watching it. Dennis Fung was a crime scene technician for the LA Police Department who gathered evidence both at the murder scene and OJ's home. Dennis spent nine days on the stand in the OJ trial, testifying to the collection of blood and other evidence, and was cross-examined by Barry Sheck, who basically took Dennis out behind the woodshed and delivered a supernatural ass whooping. FamousTrials.com describes Dennis's time on the stand thusly, quote, An LAPD criminologist, Dennis Fung's responsibilities related to the analyst of, uh, analysis of crime scene evidence. As DNA evidence became significant in O.J. Simpson's trial, as the prosecution's witness, Fung testified in detail on how each of the blood drops and other pieces of evidence were collected on the day after the murders. Fung admitted to having missed a few drops of blood on the fence near the bodies, but said that he returned several weeks afterward to collect them. On cross-examination, Fung was asked repeatedly about the contamination of evidence. When asked about whether or not he kept the dog away, Fung stated, when the dog got near the stains, we'd, we'd shoo him away. Fung also admitted that he had not used rubber gloves when collecting all the evidence, and following his testimony, Fung was greeted with handshakes and hugs from the defense table, where he was viewed as a hero. The defense, however, would go on later to describe in their closing arguments as a man who lied to cover up his involvement in a scheme to frame Simpson for murder, unquote. Poor Dennis. By the time the defense was done with the entire crime scene investigation, it was discredited and the LAPD looked like a bunch of fucking incompetents. Which they already were. There were many witnesses the defense disassembled on the stand like Dennis Fong, but there was one dude who sealed the deal for the defense. But before we get to him, we need to talk about something that will make my fellow white people pretty uncomfortable. This is a black thing, isn't it? O.J. Simpson had spent his entire professional life downplaying his blackness. I'm not black, I'm O.J. Now, according to O.J., this is not what he said. According to Vibe.com, what O.J. really said was, quote, when Johnny Cochran was talking to me about it and all that was going on, I was like, black, 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 black. I said, fuck, man, being black, this is me. This is about OJ, you know? It wasn't about black or white. It was about these guys are after me. So that's how that was expressed. It wasn't about, you know, I'm not black. It was about this ain't about being black. This is about me, unquote. What isn't in dispute is that at the beginning of the trial, neither OJ nor Robert Shapiro initially wanted to make this case about race. 
It was Johnny Cochran who crafted, crafted the narrative that the LAPD's racism, which is very well documented, was at the heart of this case. It wasn't. And over the past few weeks of the show, we've shown again and again that OJ had won the whites of the hearts of white America and the LAPD. But for Johnny, and they do not attempt to cloud the issue with facts. Quoting from a New York Times article in 1995, quote, the race issue arose when defense lawyers sought to introduce evidence that Mr. Furman, a white Los Angeles detective, harbors racist attitudes towards blacks. Mr. Furman was one of the first investigators to arrive at Nicole Simpson's condominium after she was stabbed to death last June, and prosecutors say that he later found a bloody glove at Mr. Simpson's estate. The glove, they say, matches one found at the feet of Ronald L. Goldman, Mrs. Simpson's friend, who was also killed. Defense lawyers, however, want to cross-examine Detective Furman about whether he may have falsely implicated Mr. Simpson by planting the bloody glove. The impassioned argument today indicated how much is at stake with, with regard to Detective Furman's role. Christopher Darden, a deputy district attorney who was black, said that what he called the N-word was so pejorative that it would inevitably prejudice the mostly black jury against Mr. Furman and perhaps other white police officers who were expected to testify at the trial. If you allow Mr. Cocker to use this word and play the race card, he said, the direction and focus of the case changes. It's a race case now, unquote. And you know what? <laughs> Chris Darden, he was right. But also, Mark Furman? And you're also a huge racist. Because he was, in fact, a huge racist. And in fact committed perjury when he said do you use the word nigger in describing people presently yeah oh no sir have you used that word in the past 10 years not that i recall no you mean if you called someone a nigger you have forgotten it I'm not sure I can answer that question the way you phrase it, sir. Don't know that F. Lee Bailey needed to hit the G that hard. But when he resumed the stand, Mark Furman would be forced to... Uh... Detective Furman, would you please resume the witness stand? <laughs> All right, good afternoon, Detective. Good afternoon, uh, You're reminded, sir, that you were still under oath. Mr. Allman, you may proceed. Detective Furman, uh, was the testimony that you gave in this case completely truthful? I wish to assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. Have you ever falsified a police report? I wish to assert my Fifth Amendment privilege. Is it your intention to assert your Fifth Amendment privilege with respect to all questions that I ask you? Yes. Because he had, in fact, perjured himself rather extensively, and it was documented rather extensively because he had given an interview to a Los Angeles filmmaker who was prepping a documentary in which he said all the things that he said he didn't say and did all the things that he said he didn't do. Now, Mark Furman was not the lead detective on the O.J. case, but he had found the bloody glove at O.J.'s homes a critical piece of evidence tying O.J. to the murders. Not the only piece, but it was a pretty big one. And Furman's role in the case was small, and the prosecution did not consider him a major witness. Just a link in the chain tying O.J. to the murders that O.J. had in fact committed. However, the defense 
did their fucking research and came up with 13 hours of recordings that he had given to the filmmaker on what it was like to be a cop on the streets of Los Angeles that, uh, you know, full of colorful metaphors. And by that, I mean the kind of things racist cops say about black people whenever the black people aren't around. Did Mark Furman plant the bloody glove at OJ's house? Almost certainly not. I mean, almost. But would Mark Furman have planted evidence at a crime scene if the defendant were black? Hell yeah. And you know what? That's enough. There are a lot of places the defense defenestrated the prosecution. Multiple incidents of incompetence, like the lead detective taking evidence home in the trunk of his car instead of processing it properly. You know, you're really supposed to take that thing into the station and put it in a locker and not leave it in the trunk with your lunch. Or the bumbling by Dennis Fung and documenting when and where key pieces of blood evidence are... And all of this left the prosecution just shitting the bed all over the place when they were caught flat-footed from the defense. They didn't challenge what they could have challenged and undercut the the defense's arguments by those challenges. I mean, the infamous glove incident in which OJ couldn't get the bloody gloves over his hand while wearing rubber gloves on his hands and obviously spreading his fingers to ensure that they didn't fit. Instead of, like, I don't know. Yeah, why don't we lose the gloves? And have those very expensive and very perfectly sized gloves to OJ's actual hand without rubber gloves on them. Hey, okay, so they're they're evidence. They're full of blood. Maybe, maybe, maybe they could have bought the exact same gloves in the exact same size and then have OJ slide them over his fingers proving that, you know... Fits like a glove. Instead, Chris Darden stood there like a moose in the headlights of a semi-truck and said nothing. Donald Jones, law professor at the University of Miami, told PBS's Frontline sometime after the trial where he thought the case went wrong for the prosecution, and I think it sums it up pretty well, the points that I've been trying to make through this entire series. Quote, Well, the prosecution never tied things together. Let's take, for example, the blood evidence. In order for the blood evidence to be powerful, you have to account for the chain of custody. That wasn't done, and it wasn't done in ways that were obvious. For example, there was a guy named Thano Paredes who took some blood that was in question, and one-eighth of a cc was missing. He never accounted for that. And when asked the first time, he says he doesn't know what happened. Later, toward the end of the trial, prosecution goes to him and into deposition outside the presence of the defense, he comes up with a convenient explanation. But it doesn't really make sense. Why didn't he know about that before? What's also interesting is the amount of blood that was found in OJ's car was about the size of the blood sample that was missing. None of this makes any sense. The prosecution didn't, the prosecution didn't present any evidence in a way that was powerful presented evidence in such a way that it raised more questions than it answers. The prosecution pandered to the fears that the media had fanned, and they tried a trial based on the type of tabloid themes that had been developed by the media. They never left those themes. For example, the case really had nothing to do with domestic violence. This was a murder trial, and the prosecution tried to stick to these stories because they were playing to the audience, and if they had played to the court and to the evidence, it would have been a different case. Unquote. The case was already won for the defense before Johnny ever got around to giving his famous. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Though the prosecution and indeed the American public didn't know that, but Johnny knew it because he had built a defense that the jury wanted to hear. 
He understood that this case was bigger than OJ, and if he cracked the door just enough, the jury wanted to push through and to acquit OJ. Not because OJ didn't do it. I don't think anyone on that jury jury was sitting there saying, If he said he didn't do it, he didn't do it. But they were willing to say, Maybe OJ didn't do it. And that pot, friends, is, as they say, the whole of the law. Reasonable doubt. And as I said when all this started, I knew OJ did that shit. But I would have voted not guilty because maybe, just maybe, racist cops and bubbling evidence text fucked things up and nothing the prosecution had said had given me one good reason to think otherwise. The defense's story fit. So I must quit. And so it was October 3rd, 1995, after only four hours of deliberation on a 99-day trial, the jury came back with their verdict, and it was one of the most dramatic moments of the entire trial. You couldn't have scripted it better, and everyone was watching. Wikipedia sums it up, quote, an estimated 100 million people worldwide watched or listened to the verdict's announcement. Long-distance telephone call volume declined by 58%, and trading volume on the New York Stock Exchange decreased by 41%. Water usage decreased as people avoided using bathrooms, and so much work stopped that the verdict cost an estimated $480 million in lost productivity in the United States alone. That's bullshit. The United States Supreme Court received a message on the verdict during oral arguments with the justice quietly passing a note to each other while listening to an attorney's presentation. And congressmen canceled press conferences with Joe Lieberman telling reporters, not only would you not be here, I wouldn't be here either. Unquote. And so, with the world watching, the verdict was read by the jury. All right, Mr. Cotton, Mr. Simpson, would you please stand and face the jury? Mrs. Robertson. Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles. In the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA097211. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant Orenthal James Simpson not guilty of the crime of murder in violation of Penal Code Section 187A, a felony upon Nicole Brown Simpson, a human being, as charged in count one of the information. And America lost the goddamn mind. To say that reactions were mixed would be something of an understatement. I think it's great. He deserves to go free. They had no evidence on him. So much evidence to deliberate for as short as they did and come back with a not guilty verdict. I think it shows uh, the jury was pretty irresponsible. Money can buy you justice, exactly. I think this jury sent a message that the time has come here in Los Angeles and in America that indeed there must be a level playing field for everybody. And I'm just don't think justice was served. I don't think the jury did their job. 
I think they knew what they were going to do from the gate. I think it was racist-based, and it was racist from the black point of view. The media narrative basically oversimplified every fucking thing. Black folks were happy, and white folks were, uh... My people are very upset. There's a whole other episode that could be made about the reaction to the verdict and what people were going through, but this show was... This show is already so fucking long, and we're three episodes deep into this series, and frankly, I'm not willing to do it. But more to the point, O.J. Simpson's trial wasn't really about race. It wasn't about police corruption or police incompetence. It wasn't about the facts. That, that much is for sure. What it was about was the drama, the made-for-TV drama, complete with a surprise ending. And it was all set in motion the second that Lance Ito decided that cameras would be in the courtroom. When O.J. was tried in civil court for the wrongful deaths of Nicole and Ron using the exact same evidence, he was quickly and decisively found liable for them. Why was that? No cameras. Simple. There was no justice in the criminal trial. There were actors and directors playing to a massive audience, and every single one of them, including and especially the audience, is to blame for O.J. Simpson walking free that day. There are many arguments for cameras in courtrooms, and some of them are good, but most of them are sensationalist. But Ito knew this trial would turn into a media circus because it was already a media circus when he made that decision. And allowing it to play live on television brought out the worst in everyone in that courtroom, and it told everyone, and I mean everyone, including and especially the jury, that there was money and fame to be had if they just played the part they were given. They did, and there was. There's no great moral here at the end of four weeks of these podcast series. No great revelization to be gleaned from the very small slices that I've given up to you from a huge shit pie, except maybe one. We live in America, and everything in America has a profit motive, even murder trials. If Orenthal James Simpson was just some black guy from South Central, his ass would have been on death row in six months. But he was O.J. Simpson, celebrity millionaire, and all of his money just proves that sometimes trickle-down economics just actually work. All you need to be willing to do for it to work is to sell your soul and stand under the trickle. And it also proves that blood and circuses never really go out of style. The only thing that changes is the size of the Coliseums. That is it for our show this week and for our summer series for 2023. Did we learn anything new? No. Did I change anyone's mind about the guilt or innocence of O.J. Simpson? Also, no. Not even mine. Did I take part in the vulture capitalism that was the O.J. Simpson trial by using it as a topic? Okay, fair point. But, you know, I'm not getting rich off of it. And so, I don't feel so bad about it. Now, next week, we'll do something silly to make up for this grim bullshit. Or maybe we'll just have it over to Dowers for a beer and take a spin on the wheel of country. Who fucking knows? All I know is that I am done with OJ. Speaking of being done, rate and review this show so others can find us and be done with taking your podcast recommendations. If you want to kick us a buck for to keep a future summer series as our spooktacular coming up in spooky season, head on over to patreon.com slash what the hell podcast and kick us that dollar. Now, do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits, otherwise he will have no choice 
but to spend eight or nine days on a witness stand explaining to the jury how an RSSP works. And so for me, Dave, I'm gonna raise a fuss, I'm gonna raise a holler, Bledsoe, producer. My boss said no dice, son. You've got to spend the next five hours editing these drunken belches and flashing from the recording desk. Gavin! All the fictional alternate jurors on this show, we want to say, you know, sometimes he wondered what he was supposed to do, but there just ain't no cure for those dinner-fung blues. And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. He's like the next OJ.